Welcome back to Top 5 Disco. I'm Josh. I am Adam. And it's been a while since my brother and I have sat down in my little apartment recording studio here uh, to do a podcast for y'all, but we're pretty uh, excited. So excited. Especially for today. Today is a very crisp, late October, autumn day. Perfect temperature, perfect ambiance for our next artist that we want to talk about, Counting Crows. Yeah, exactly. That size says it all. This is, no question... One of my favorite bands of all time. And in fact, doing the sort of re-listening that I do, that we do for these podcasts, it's been cemented even higher, I think, for me. Now, I said this is one of my favorite bands of all time, but Adam... This is my all-time favorite band, yeah, for sure. No um, question. I was definitely nervous going into this podcast because I have so much to say about too this band. To too much Too many opinions. It's just... I've heard this many times before about this band, but they've really been the soundtrack of my life for a while, since early high school, I'd say. And while nervous, I'm extremely excited to introduce all of you to them and to just talk about them with my brother, who is another avid Counting Crows fan. Yeah, this band is incredibly special. And I think, I mean, this entire podcast series will be going into... Album by album, song by song, what makes them special? But on the whole, there's <laughs> there's so much. It's it's the songwriting, it's the emotion, it's the range of styles, and it's the band interplay. Yes, the, this band, the, the collective, the you know between their albums, the five to seven to eight of them, right? Yeah, who play seven? <laughs> seven <laughs> never gets to eight. Uh, who play on these records have such unbelievable chemistry and mastery <sighs> yes. of their instruments and. Like I said, the interplay, the way they weave into each other on so many of these songs makes each song an incredible listen. I was saying earlier to Adam that I wish I had gone through every song seven times so I could listen to each instrument separately with that focus because there's just so much. There is. And so what's funny about that is after their most recent album came out, uh, Somewhere Under Wonderland in 2014, you and I had discussed potentially doing... You know, the early versions of this podcast when we would just text each other, we had discussed doing that for Counting Crows. So I just, by myself, thinking that you were going to do the same thing, went through every album. Basically what I did for this podcast now, but this is four four years years later. Um, But I did exactly that. I remember going through every song of every album, listening specifically for the instruments. And that can be a bit much. But Yeah, yeah. We don't need to... uh overdo it no though we probably will anyway but what you said about the band is so accurate I, I think this is just for me and i guess for you as well um just the perfect combination of an incredible band an incredibly sensitive band uh who works extremely well together and an incredible songwriter and vocalist and lead performer exactly and everything it just it, it all culminated in this perfect band i wanted to say and talk about the band first because many times when you talk about rock bands and pop bands the main focus is on the lead singer songwriter which cannot be you know overstated how incredible adam duritz the lead vocalist singer songwriter of this band is yeah but what makes it even more special is behind him or or within you know the yeah. space is this incredible backing band and what they do with the songs that he brings in and he's primary songwriter but there's a bunch of songs where certain other members they share songwriting credit. exactly the, the 
the thing about Adam Duritz, the lead uh, lead singer songwriter, makes him so special to me is so many of his melodies seem so effortless. I'm going to use yes. this word uh, many times in this podcast through many songs that there's so many melodies that just fall out of his mouth and into my ears in such a beautiful way and and I just can't ima- I can't believe that one person has written so many incredible melodies and earworms that just live inside my brain at all times. Yeah, and We'll talk about it from album to album, but the thing is, what's interesting is he is very lyrically driven, but I also read and have heard him say that it's never lyrics first. Mm. It's either music first or it's music and lyrics at the same exact time. But the interesting thing about his melodies, a lot of them, is that they're ever-changing and they're going with the lyrics. So you will rarely, and I'm sure... I'm going to prove myself uh, false in the future about this, but you'll rarely hear him repeat the same exact melody from verse to verse. He's always going with the lyrics that he has and the emotion and it's, it's, it's everything. We'll start to get uh, very soon into the background information about how this band came together. But just to touch on what you just said, one of the reasons this band became so special and so popular was this very unique uh, blend of storytelling and vocalizing and having these very intimate and emotional musical performances where the way Adam sings and emotes is very different from the way the record sounds and how every single time he sings these songs, he puts different spins on the melodies, on the words, and it became such an exciting, for maybe some people frustrating, but exciting way to see a live performance that you were never going to see just the album played in front of you. You were going to see what he was feeling at that night, melodically, emotionally, lyrically, which is just so many bands don't do. Yeah, the interesting thing is that we're mainly going to be talking about their recorded discography during right. this podcast, but they are also, I'm not going to say they're primarily a live band, but they are... They at least started that They way. are a yeah. live band. Yeah. There are these three things, you know, Adam Duritz has said, uh, are important for any band to write good songs, to record albums, and to play live shows. And I think they do all three of them incredibly. And really, their live shows are something special. Uh, I've seen them 12 times at this point, (laughs) which is maybe a little too much, but I'm going to see them until one of us goes. (laughs) You or the other Adam? Yeah, or just the band in general. I mean, we'll see, but yeah. All right, before we get into the history of the band, just quickly, we just want to talk about how the two of us got into the band. Please. Um, I am honestly struggling a bit to pinpoint it, but I have to confess, I think the first song I ever heard by Counting Crows was Accidentally in Love from the Shrek 2 soundtrack, um, which we'll be talking about later in a later uh, episode when we talk about sort of their B-sides and non-album tracks, etc. But um, this song catapulted... Um, but um, the, <laughs> yeah, Crow's joke. <clears throat> Catapult them into another level of stardom, where they were starting to be recognized by the Academy Awards, the Grammys, the yada yada. Those right. the, all these nominations. Um, and then shortly after hearing that song and falling in love with that song, I picked up their greatest hits album, which you know for me is usually <sighs> a faux pas. That sounds right because that's not really my mo. But you know, in my younger years, I picked up. The films without uh, films about ghosts uh, greatest hits collection, which is an amazing collection, by the way, and I fell in love with almost every single song on that album. 
That's crazy because yeah. that's a that's an eclectic collection. It is. It's a really good collection. It's not perfect. There's definitely missing a bunch of chunks and a bunch of sounds actually. Um, but and after that, the first album I picked up by them was this Desert Life, which is an incredibly oh, yeah. special album to me. Um, and then from there, I just started going. Uh, this Desert Life is their third album, so I just started sort of branching out from there to the other albums that they had out at the time. Um, but yeah, started falling in love with them after the greatest hits. Yeah, and for me, as always, uh, it came through you. You introduced me in some way. I mean, I'm sure I had heard, you know, some of the biggest hits on the radio at times, but I'm sure I never knew that that was right. Counting Mr. Crows Jones, or Mr. Long Jones, December, even Accidentally in Love. At that point, like I don't think I was conscious that that was this band called Counting Crows. Right. But these are songs that I had heard, but. So I don't really know where it began, but there are just like a few moments I just kind of remember where the band kicked in mm. for me. And it's interesting, I forgot until you just said, um, when you picked up this Desert Life, I think we were on our way to Maryland? We were in, yep, Baltimore, Maryland, Johns Hopkins. We were in Maryland, and you picked up uh, This Desert Life, and by the way, by Red Hot Chili Peppers, Red Chili Peppers yep. two albums that I love, uh, yeah, that I love, obviously. Um and I remember, I think you list, let me listen to This Desert Life in the Car, and I remember thinking it was extremely special. Um, also, I have this memory, and we're about to talk about August and Everything After, but I have this memory of walking upstairs in our house in Connecticut and hearing the opening riff to Round Here, mm. and you were just like on the couch listening to that song. Oh my God. And for some reason, <laughs> that just has stuck with me, because I think, I don't know if that was the first time I heard it, but that is obviously such a special song for Did Counting Crows. Did you step out the front door? I stepped in yeah, the right. garage door. <laughs> um, also, being in your car, listening to Washington Square from Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, it was, it must have been on the way to school you were driving me to, to school when we were actually in high school together mm -hmm. yeah. um that's another one that i just remember was extremely special uh it's all these moments and i i don't know it all culminated in high school early high school i just got do into you, this band so hard giving you uh a like bootleg version of cowboys before the album came out no okay it's because so so I got into Counting Crows around 2004. So 2008, when Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings came out, that was the first album that I was eagerly anticipating as a huge fan. Yeah. And I remember finding Cowboys online, and it was not released. And I was like, holy fucking shit, what is this? And I just remember like having a rip of the MP3 and having it on some sort of device. And I remember walking out at night around our house listening to Cowboys over and over and that over. That is the best place to yeah, listen to Counting Crows, such, by the way. And it's, especially that song, which is incredibly dark. Um, yeah, all these, I mean, we'll be going through so many moments. Was that before or after the concert at Rockette Stadium? It was after. So we so saw... So you had already seen it. We saw... That's true. No, but... Well, remember, I had the rip of it before the album came. It's, it's a good question. No, so I had heard that song, yes. Okay. I had heard Cowboys before. But yes, we had seen, the first time both Adam and I had seen Counting Crows live was the end of 2007, right before they released Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings. Right. That was a very sad concert for me, looking back <laughs> on it, because it was the first concert I ever saw of theirs. And to be honest, I have a feeling that, because that was also right before I got very heavily into them. I'm sure, I can't even think of it consciously, but I'm sure that 
had something to do with me getting into them. I mean, their live performance is really something special. Yeah. But specifically about that performance... I was right up there. He was... Right up at the well, front. Well, so Josh, <laughs> myself, my father, and Josh were all at this concert. Uh, but we were in, like, the bleachers. Uh, but they, I guess, opened up the general admission, and you were just able to go. You had some friends that yeah. were there. And you were like, hey, I'm going to go with my friends. And my dad was having an allergy attack. I don't know if someone had cats that there was dander. I don't know what was going on. But he needed me to stick with him in the bleachers and basically didn't let me go. You're the better son. Sure. But I mean, obviously, no one knew at that point how important this band would be to me. But I just wish because I looked at that set list since. Oh, oh my God. Oh, uh, anyway. So, yeah. Let's go right into how the band came to be Counting Crows. Um, I'm going to lean more on you for this because you probably know a little more than I do, but formed in 91, good good year. Uh, Berkeley, (laughs) California, the sort of Bay Area. Um, We said earlier, uh, Adam Duritz, um, main singer, songwriter, vocalist. I'm sure he plays guitar and later albums he plays piano and all sorts of things. I don't think he plays guitar. He doesn't play guitar? No, he's just mainly piano and he calls himself a rudimentary piano player, but he still plays some pretty good piano in some of his songs. Yeah, he uh, he was playing in a bunch of bands in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, the Himalayans, Sorted Humor, and there was just a huge community of musicians there, and eventually a bunch of those artists, um, and they were always collaborating, uh, but they all kind of joined Counting Crows at one point, and Counting Crows really started as an acoustic duo. It yeah. was Adam and Dave Bryson, and Dave Bryson was a producer around uh the bay area and he also played guitar but they were introduced to one another by david immergluck who eventually joined counting crows as a full-on member and basically they were playing coffee houses and adam had these two other bands that he cared about maybe even more than counting crows right it was just a little side project yeah but i think he realized himself that it was really something special and i think he realized that they were getting a response that maybe other acts that he was in uh weren't getting so is that due to you know dave bryson's contributions or is that because adam was writing sort of softer more intimate material that's a good question i don't know um i think maybe it was had something to do with putting him out there Adam just bare mm. you know all the other bands in sordid humor he was a background vocalist like he was not the main singer there in the Himalayans a little heavier I, rockier yeah it was definitely like a full band thing and obviously Cannon Crows became a full uh band but I still think it was something about him just being up there bare singing these melodies and just like a soft guitar in the right. background that was something really special and what's interesting is that, you know, Dave Bryson never really left that role in Counting Crows. He still sort of remained the rhythm rhythm guitarist. Um, But yeah. But he collaborates on a lot of the songs as well. Yeah, definitely definitely early on. Um, But then eventually uh, they added Charlie Gillingham, Gillingham, uh, on keyboards. He was playing with like every band in yeah. the Bay Area. I think I read somewhere that literally, or at least they say literally 30 bands. Yeah, I, I, I saw to that hear too. Adam talk about this, what you were just saying, um, Adam Duritz rather, talk about what Adam um, was just saying, how all these bands were collaborating in the Bay Area and constantly being in each other's bands and watching each other's bands. Sounds like such a fun time I to know. be an artist I know. and a musician. I'm so jealous I, of I'm that. I'm sure it wasn't just happening in the Bay Area, but still. Right, right, right. But the way he talks about yeah, it. Yeah, and you know. I mean, I think that, th- to me, that does sound like something special to 
at least a couple decades ago. Yeah. You don't think it's the same? Maybe not, but maybe I'm just not getting at it enough <laughs> and playing with enough people. Anyway, so Charlie Gillingham on piano, keyboards, also the you know B3 Hammond, all these organs, Mellotron, yep. accordion. Right. Well, this all happens eventually. At that point, when they formed as a band initially, they had this sound. Wasn't as colorful. Yeah, well, it was... I'd, I've never heard of Roxy music. I don't really know their music, yeah. but supposedly they they sounded like late model Roxy music. Okay. Um, so whatever that means that he was playing. Matt Malley was the bass player, and he also, I think, was playing in some other bands with these guys early on. And then Steve Bowman was a drummer that I think was like... Uh, Adam and Dave knew from like the studio downstairs from where they rehearsed and oh, stuff nice. like that. So they all came together. Um, they recorded 15 songs for a demo, which I think was unheard of. You just don't, just you don't that many. Yeah, you don't release a demo, a CD of 15 songs. But I think it really showed to everyone that this band can write songs. Well, when you say release, do you mean like? They're called demos. Where You're right. Like, it wasn't really shop around. To... I think they shopped it around to yeah. labels. They also probably sold some of them at shows. I'm yeah. not exactly sure about that. But eventually there were these two showcases, uh, this BMI and ASCAP uh, showcase, two of them, um, these performing rights organizations. And at the end, Counting Crows played. And at the end of the last showcase, they got uh, they were offered contracts from every major record label oh wow so there was a huge bidding war and eventually they decided to sign with geffen and they also it's interesting first of all they were signed four months after they formed as a band it's insane i don't it's know what insane. it's like for other bands but that just seems so crazy to well, it's me. also and a sounds, testament to how yeah it sounds like they, they were such a phenomenon in the Sa- san francisco area in terms of these you know, selling out these shows and having these incredibly emotional, powerful performances. But yeah, we were talking in the last series we did about Brandy Carlisle. Similarly, her in the Seattle scene and Columbia was basically like, yeah, we want that. We exactly. Want exactly. So this was, this was everyone. And they eventually signed with Geffen. And what's interesting to note is that they traded away a lot of money that they could have gotten from other contracts for complete creative control over the album and a higher royalty rate. Wow. Which is genius. Which was, it was very <laughs> yeah. smart because their first album was one of the Killed highest selling it. records of the 90s. Yeah. And so I'm, they are still getting, I'm sure, a lot of money from they that. They sold millions and millions, millions. and millions. It's no, crazy to think about record selling that much at all anymore. And also a huge part of Counting Crows, and one of the reasons I love them so much is how true they stick to their vision and how authentic they are and how they just do what they want to do they don't let any anyone else interfere with what they want to do and that started from the get-go yeah that's great to hear so and i mean i don't know if adam would have let it happen any other way but that's how it happened yeah okay so their debut album august and everything after the big one the classic as many would say came out september 14th 1993 the day after I was born. Big, nice birthday present for Adam here. And this was produced by T-Bone Burnett, a huge producer. We've talked about him before in the last Brandy Carlisle series. Right. He produced uh, the story. Right. The breakout for Brandy also. Um, what's cool about this album is, even outside of T-Bone Burnett, this was recorded by Pat McCarthy, this Irish record producer, engineer, mixer, who's worked with R.E.M. and U2 two of arguably the biggest rock bands of the 80s and 90s. Like, I had no idea. It's insane. And actually, Pat McCarthy ended up taking over as as main producer for R.E.M. and some of their later albums. He took over from Scott Litt. 
Scott Litt mixed this album. Scott Litt is the main producer of all these REM albums from the 80s and 90s. Wow. Which so is when amazing. people say that Counting Crows have know, an REM influence, yeah. Well, I'll be talking about REM throughout this podcast. Slid into that, yeah. Yeah, because I've recently become a huge REM fan as well. Um, Scott Litt, like I said, produced all these big REM albums, but also produced Indigo Girls, Replacements, later Incubus. And it's also Scott Litt, because I said he's mixed this album. He mm-hmm. mixed In Utero by uh, Nirvana. Wow. He mixed Super Unknown by Soundgarden. Another Geffen artist, by the way. Uh, Nirvana, yes. Nirvana. Two of these big 90s grunge albums that I adore. So, so I, I, I never knew any of this. I didn't really pay attention to they the minor notes. They sound very different. I mean, oh, obviously, they do. they do. he's recording it. He's not, you know... But my point is they've got it. these like great 90s uh, record people coming out for the show. I mean, they, they, this is not just an amazing band that was picked up by Geffen. They, they gave him real talent yeah. to help them put this album together. Um, as it says in the liner notes, this is recorded in the living room in a big house on a hill on in a LA. Hill. Yep. Um, we talk- Which, by the way, sorry, Robbie Robertson uh, from the band, he, I guess, had suggested that to Adam. He just said that, like, recording studios, I think Tebow Burnett was like, recording studios are a breeding ground for despair. <laughs> and basically, I think Robbie was like, you should record in the house. I'm not sure if that's what the band did, but, and I think Adam took that to heart. I think it sounds fun to record in the house oh, instead yeah. of like a sterile oh, recording absolutely. environment. So this album came out, like I said, in September. Apparently, it took a little bit to gain traction and took a few months. But then Mr. Jones came out, which was a huge hit on MTV. And like Adam said, this became like the fastest selling album since Nirvana's Nevermind. Speaking yeah. of Nirvana again, which is insane. This got to the number four on the Billboard charts in 94. At the time, seven million copies. I'm sure tons more now. This was huge. And I think most people today, most friends of mine or, or you know, peers, colleagues, etc., when I talk about Cat and Crow, it's like, oh, I love August and Everything After. I right. know this album. That's, it's the one album most people know, and many, not many people know what came afterwards. Which is which, so crazy to both of which us. Which is criminal, and we're about to help all of you it out, is. sort of introducing you to the later discography. But it's, it is very important and interesting to see where they came from and, and how huge this album was and why. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that. But over, um, overall, what do you think about uh, August and Everything After? I will go right out there and say it. Uh, for all of those true Counting Crows fans and even peripheral ones who maybe just know this album, this is not my favorite Counting Crows album. Nor mine. Yeah. Uh, still, though, I not think even it's, close. Yeah, I still think it's a great album. I really yeah. do. I think it it probably was the perfect album to showcase this band because it really put Adam out front there. Right. Kind of like can't... I said, like with him and and Dave early on in coffee shops. This was they didn't just then come out and be this huge band band right. after that they still the band does a great job kind of creating the this base for adam to ramble over right and sing over and but as a whole the album is very sparse which is nice very warm yeah um it's so raw so emotional so uh, evocative i mean this is him and the band as well but it really it, it really is just sort of the adam show um he's the the real focal point and i don't again i don't know like a lot a lot of albums i know a lot of <laughs> albums but i still don't know every album that there is out there and yet i still feel like this must have been very unique something about it when it came out there's something about the sound of this album and this band that just sounds so unique and there's well, something well, I, I really think, love like, about I that i was about to say it's a, a very cohesive album to me and yet 
there are a lot of different sounds still on this album. To go from Round Here, which is, you know, that very evocative, slow storytelling build kind of song, into sort of this alt-country folk of Omaha, into this peppy Mr. Jones, and then you've got Rain King. I mean, there are a lot of still different sounds and styles and moods on this one album, which sort of showcase what this band can do and what would continue to do and grow in the yeah. later albums. And also, I don't know if people really know this about Counting Crows, or maybe I'm ignorant uh, <laughs> as to what other people know, but this album is very roots rocky and southern. And like, I feel like people think Counting Crows, oh, alternative rock band, they hear Mr. Jones, and it's not like you really hear it on Mr. Jones right. or Accidentally in Love and stuff like that. But this band started off and has always maintained this folksy, folksy flair. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely um, some country twang in his vocals a lot of the time throughout sure. the discography. Yes. All right. Should we go right right down into our top fives? We can. I just want to say a little something about the recording of the album, which sure. I thought was really interesting. Um, Adam and the rest of the band have said that the recording for this album compared to any other album was just hell. Oh, no. It was like awful, which is, I always just think it's interesting to think, to, you know, hear what actually goes into an album, right. even if you love an album like the Beatles. Yeah, it's interesting I, to look I about. I always wish I was a fly on the wall in these recording sessions yeah. in the studios or in the house rather. But again, like I said before, they sounded very different when they first started, they sounded like Roxy music, which I th maybe I've listened to like one or two little snippets just to get a flavor for what that is. And it just sounds a lot more produced and a lot more, I don't know, late eighties. It's so funny. So do you know the Scissor Sisters cover, Do the Strand? Yeah. Is that that's Roxy a Roxy music? Oh, music you know song. what? I think I did know that. I, I think I put two and two together at one point. But that's point. actually early Roxy music. That's their debut album. So it's not late era. Okay. But, but yeah, they're more of like a glam band that sort of had some avant-garde pop rock style right and if you listen to some of those flying demos that i was talking about you'll hear the production that they were working with but basically adam early on he decided at the beginning to be the band leader which i think was very hard on the band at first oh. there was a lot of arguments and, and no one knew what they were doing and he was just kind of trying to take the reins and, and steer in a direction that he thought was best uh but the big thing the most interesting most interesting thing is that the sound that you hear on this album is because Adam decided that everyone needed to strip down, not naked, like uh, <laughs> instrumentally. Like Charlie got rid of all of his synths. He only now on this record oh. plays a little bit of piano and mostly Hammond B3 organ. Uh, Steve, the drummer, already, I mean, when you see it, his set is still very big. Uh, but I guess he got rid of half of his drum set. I'm sure it was a lot bigger. Like a big 80s. Yeah. Clammy. Yeah. Matt Malley got rid of his fretless basses. Uh, which is that sound that yesterday we were listening to something and you're like, that sounds like uh, Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah, yeah, like the, the early super Bare Naked slidey, ladies. almost like, well, like an upright sounds. Right. You got no friends. Exactly. Yeah. So they all just kind of pared down. And he also wanted them all to get into like a circle and just learn how to play off one another and mm -hmm. get really sensitive, like the band that they are now, the live band that they are. So anyway. It was, I just thought it was really interesting to to see what went into them producing this kind of sound and which which they don't really fall back to that frequently. They don't. And Adam has said that he can listen to any one of his records, but this is the one that I don't know even know if he listens to it anymore. I think it's also because he said that there's like three or four songs that he wish he wish listening back to it, he wishes he sang it differently. He doesn't oh. think that they as a band 
really knew how to play together as well at that point because they really were just starting out again. They got signed four months after they formed as a band. So they were still a fresh band. And yet, even with that, this became one of the biggest selling albums of the 90s. Yeah. All right, let's talk about our favorites on this album, Top 5 Disco. Um, okay, so what we're going to do here, for those of you who are new to the podcast, is Adam and I are going to go back and forth listing our top five favorite songs on this album, August and Everything After, and then we'll sort of go into the details of why we picked it or why we didn't pick other ones. Okay, I'll start it off. Go ahead. My number five favorite song on August and Everything After is Time and Time Again. Wow. I thought that would be higher for you. Higher. Yeah, I always knew that that was, that a, was song a Josh that you song. Yeah. Number five for me is A Murder of One. That's the closer. Great one. Okay, my number four song is Anna Begins. Wow. Okay. Am I surprising you? You are, but that's okay. I had a feeling that we'd have some differences. My number four is Time and Time Again. Ooh, wow. Yeah. You put it higher than me. I know. <laughs> my number three is Rain King. My number three, I don't know if this is surprising or not, is Mr. Jones. A little surprising. Okay. Uh, my number two is A Murder of One. Wow. My number two is Round Here. Okay. You got it. I was <laughs> yeah. like, wait, what? My number one is Round Here. Good choice. My number one is Rain yep. King. Beautiful. Okay, so let's start it off with my number four pick, and weirdly wasn't on your list, Anna Begins. Then I start to think about the consequences. I don't get no sleep in a quiet room. And this time, when kindness falls like rain, it washes me away. And Anna Begins to change my mind. Every time she Okay, so Anna Begins, this was a huge grower for me. So yeah. I, like, I was surprised it wasn't on yours because I thought you liked it way more than I did. Really? Yeah, maybe not. No, never been a favorite of yours? It really hasn't, which I don't know if that's interesting or not. I think, because again, I think this is a very lyrically driven song. I mean, a lot of these songs on this album specifically are lyrically driven. Mm. But musically, it never really, really hit me that much. Um I th- my favorite part is the chorus. Yeah. I think how it opens up to that. A big thing with this album is a lot of the verses are minor, and then it goes into a major chorus right. in a really nice way. And I think this is like the the best that they do with that. Totally. This has such a cool percussive drum beat to me. Oh, it's, icon- it's iconic, quote it, unquote, well, it for iconic. me, yeah, for, yeah. for you and me. It's such a cool drum beat. It's got that spooky Hammond organ sort yeah. of drifting in the background that I love. There's something about that stop of the snare yeah i just love it and like you said i think the best part truly is the chord changes in both the verse to the pre-chorus and the pre-chorus yes. to the chorus yes the pre-chorus and is great i love the pre-chorus but again like you said that change to major in the chorus and that lyric it washes her away as the music just like washes, washes. over you yes. i love stuff like that maybe it was unintentional but it's beautiful. And I, and I actually love the bridge, too. The, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. So you can call it a bridge, but this is sort of what I was talking <laughs> about. before. I know. argue about no, what no, a bridge this is. is it's, this is interesting. And this is kind of uh, what I was saying before about he will take a, like, these are the same chords that he uses in the verse. And he just sings something different over it. Like, I don't know if this is a bridge. I think this is just wow. verse three. Which, that begs, he... which begs the question, how much of this was improvised 
or or, or like he, he tried it out once at a live show and decided, oh, that's the one I'm going to go with for the record. Like, I wonder how many iterations of Anna Begins happened before he landed. So this song was one of the earliest songs I think he's actually ever written. Like, as soon oh, as he wow. came back from this backpacking trip to Europe, he wrote this with a group of uh, instrumentalists, like, actually, Marty Jones, who is Mr. Jones, was in this <laughs> band. Uh, Dave Bryson, and then these other two people, I don't know, Lydia, Holly, and Toby Hawkins. And yeah, I think, who are those people? I don't actually know. Again, I think I these are probably just yeah. uh, Bay Area musicians. Okay. But I think this was uh, this was one of those songs that he just started like singing ran- like randomly. And he, a lot of the songs on this album, it's amazing, uh, I heard, were just like stream of conscious crazy. songs what, that what he a, actually just pared down yeah. from like 12 minutes to five minutes. It's crazy. One of my favorite parts of this song is the ending when he just starts letting loose vocally. Mm-hmm. She's talking in her sleep. It's keeping me away. Yeah, I, wrong, but, uh, I love it. I love it. It's moving me along and Anna begins. Yeah, he's he's so good. The chorus, I think specifically, aside from just the major change, it opens up so nicely in terms of these little picked notes, which is obviously my my shit. That's always my favorite <laughs> stuff. There's this awesome bell beat. Uh, that Steve is doing. There's like a little triangle. It's just really nice. But overall, I just think that this song is a great depiction of the uncertainty in a relationship. Mm. I think he really... I remember I took my my best friend Jake to see Counting Crows at one point, like in 2012 maybe. I don't know if he had really heard Anna Begins before, but he heard it live, especially when Adam is not really like singing it. He kind of just like speaks a lot of it. And he was just like, this is amazing. Yeah. Like lyrically. And I just, I think after that, I started paying a little bit more attention to it. But um, one of my favorite little lyrics is, and every time she sneezes, I, I believe it's love. That. Yeah. It's such a weird little line, but it's so adorable in a way. Yeah. It is. Love someone so much that their little sneeze. Yeah, every little thing. Every little thing. I love it. In general, with all these songs, there are a couple lyrics that I always want to pick out just because, again, I mean, I'm not a very lyric heavy person, but he is definitely my favorite lyricist. Um, Actually, unfortunately, the first one is a lyric I don't like. He says, Her kindness bangs a gong. I just find that to be so stupid. You don't like the word gong. No, and I think I, I think he's basically saying it like it it hits his heart or something like that. But aside from that, the good ones, I'm sure there's something in a shade of gray or something in between, and I can always change my name if that's what you mean. Because mm. earlier on, she's like, you're, you're changing, you're always changing. And then he just kind of retorts with that, which I love. Uh, and you try to tell yourself the things you try to tell yourself to make yourself forget. It's uh, a fun little wordplay. Yeah, play. it's just yeah, very, I love wordplay like well that worded. Uh, yeah, that's Anna Begins. Anna Begins. I actually have a couple friends who I know this is their favorite Counting Crows song of all time. Same, which is which is interesting. It's definitely not my favorite, but I do I do really like this song. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to my number five song and your number four, time and time again. how 
this song starts with a little simple guitar riff, kind of like round here. Yeah, it's almost something that I would have written in my teenage years. That like a very that simple, doomy, yeah, that doomy, grungy kind of um, little guitar riff. But then you got that nice Hammond backdrop again. It's just yep. oh god, I love that sound. It's so special to Counting Crows. I mean, they have organ on all of their records, and it really is something that I think distinguishes them from a lot of bands. It from just, the it's 90s such a nice on. texture. I always like, it's funny, you, you talked about how this album especially, there was them trying to strip back and sort of remove some of that gloss. Yeah. They still have these nice touches of atmosphere coming in from when the Hammond comes in. Those are really my favorite For sure. parts. Yeah. Oh, it's the best. He creates this, this pad on all these songs. It also just, like I said, I said it in the last, um, last song, it gives it kind of a spookiness. There's a little bit of an eeriness yes. sometimes to these songs that I, that I, that's not just straight ahead, you know, rock songs or folk songs. I agree. This is one of the songs that Adam, off the top of his head, sang, basically wrote the lyrics and sang the melodies, and that's he pared so it down from 12 insane. minutes to 12 minutes. however long the song actually is, five minutes, which is amazing i mean that this guy can come up with these actually meaningful lyrics and beautiful melodies um something i love about this song and this is another thing that counting crows does in a lot of their music there's this kind of drone bass if you know what i mean i do like he's just hitting the same note while the rest of the band plays a different chord and it creates this kind of anticipatory feeling but the best part is that in the third verse uh, Matt starts playing the actual root notes. Right. He actually changes, right. and it's so special. So it's not just Adam who's changing every verse, every chorus. It's the band that are sort of adapting exactly. to that change as well. What's interesting to me is, is Adam knows this, and listeners of the podcast probably know this, one of my biggest pet peeves in music is when the chorus is just the title of the song. For whatever reason, this song is an exception to me. Just hearing time and yeah. time again. Something about the boom, boom, the, the descent of the bass and the it's such a swaggery, chanty chorus. And I and I agree. I think the repetition is really effective here. Also because of what he's saying, just like time and time again, I can't please myself. So he's just like again, time and, again, and time again. again. Repetition, yeah, yeah, repetition. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Best just, part of the song to me? Oh, yeah. The bridge. The bridge. The bridge is. So, when are you coming home? Sweet angel. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Yeah, Charlie is just like. <laughs> oh, it's so swaggery. Oh, it's so good. And there's this rare guitar solo on this song that doesn't happen that frequently. On this album at all. Yeah. Because, I mean, again, we talked about Dave is like the rhythm guitar player. Maybe he doesn't like playing solos. I don't know right. what it is. We don't but... get a real lead guitarist until the next record, which we'll talk about. But uh, I love the... I want to set fire to this city. Yeah, I love it. Just... He's so many good little vocal lines, and he stretches... Like, I know, I actually remember in high school putting on this album or or, or something, um, and I remember either a friend or even a teacher, or I don't know, someone was just like, I do not like Counting Crows. They are so whiny. Yeah, that's which what I I've think heard is a an lot. interesting... I mean, people can talk about what they don't like about the band, which is fine. But whininess is subjective to me because to me, this is incredibly emotional. Yeah. And like, he's the true, you know, emo king, if you really want to talk about it. It's not, you know, um, from the punk sort of music perspective, but emotionally and vocally, 
you can call it a whine or you can call it just like a man stretching his emotional yeah he's just emoting yeah he's emoting melodically and i'd prefer this to any like clean cut pop singer any day yeah we were just listening to uh howard stern a howard stern interview uh with adam and the crows and he was and howard was saying like that is real singing that is real singing. He was like, that was one of the best performances I've ever heard on my yeah, show. Just bearing your soul. Yeah, yeah, so good. Uh, interestingly about this song, maybe it's not that interesting. <laughs> uh, it was written by uh, Adam, Dave Bryson, Charlie, Steve Bowman, actually, and this guy, Don Dixon. And Don Dixon, yeah, who's Don that? Dixon uh, is, I guess, a jangle pop producer, oh. which I mean, is R.E.M. jangle pop? They definitely were, you know, the beginning. So again, yeah. I don't know how this guy specifically got brought into this song, but he's a writing credit. And also, very fun fact, Dixon's wife is Marty with an I, Jones. And Mar- and Marty Jones with a Y is Mr. Jones and like, a bass player that Adams played with. I just thought That's that was a fun fact. fun connection. Yep. Speaking of Mr. Jones, Adams' number three song didn't quite make my list, but the huge, huge single that propelled them into stardom, Mr. Jones. I really needed to forget about how much I this know, song has been played it's so since it ubiquitous. came out. It is so ubiquitous. Instant classic. But it's a great song it to is. me, despite its ubiquity. Is that yeah, the word? It is. Uh, yeah, it is so peppy, so catchy, and it just feels really good. And it's a really well-written song, and there are so many melodies all over the place. Talk about verses that change from one to the other. Every single verse is different. I love his vocals on the song. I will say, these lists are incredibly hard for me, especially because this is such a great band, and they have so many great songs on each album, that the way I've done my lists, today at least, because tomorrow they'll change, and yesterday they were different, is I'm trying to think of the songs that I want to put on right now. And I think even though Mr. Jones probably is a better song than Time and Time Again, than Anna Begins, I just don't reach for it anymore. And I think yeah. that's because of that ubiquity, which is too bad. It is. and Because, it, yeah, it's, I it's think great. That, it's a great song. I think I'm going to start reaching for it more, to be honest. Mm. I think I really needed to... Distance yourself from it or, or come in with a fresh For slit. years. Yeah. For years. Like, I definitely would not listen to this a whole lot until, you know, even just the research, quote-unquote, for this podcast. But... Yeah, something interesting to note is that the drums, I believe, were played by someone named Denny Fongheiser. It wasn't Steve. And what's kind of sad about that is that there was a point where I was like, oh, you know what's nice? Counting Crows, by the way, have gone through, not even gone through. They've had three drummers. They're on their third drummer right now. There was something where I was like, wow, Counting Crows has had, you know, a major hit with all three drummers. Isn't that nice for them? Steve, I don't think, was <laughs> on this song. song. Uh, I think I also heard that this he, song He's in the video, maybe. He's in the video, for <laughs> sure. Um, it was very hard for them to get a drum take. I don't know what, what it is about that, but this huh. guy, Denny, I guess, came in and, and killed it. 
Um, Percussive. Speaking of percussion, by the way, I love that the tambourine is throughout this song. Is it not tambourine? You're looking at me like I don't know no, what you're talking about. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was unintentional. No, there probably is. There yeah. probably is a lot of it's good tambourine. It's just a great party song. Yeah, it's not even... I don't even know if it's party is the right. Well, I just mean because it's so peppy. Like it's I would peppy, throw this and, you're, and, you're, and you're right. It is. You know, it's about not they're, lyrically. They're, they're at a bar. Well, they they are at a bar. So it's like <laughs> not lyrically. Well, lyrically. <laughs> uh, I do like the concept of this song a lot, and it's even more fun to look back at it to see how. I mean, this song specifically really shot them into stardom. I mean, Adam will say that it's a lot of things that did that. You know, there was a performance that they did of Round Here on Saturday Night Live, and. Uh, the David Letterman show. That Which, if you do not know, if you need to, an introduction to old Counting Crows, watch their rendition of Round Here on David Letterman. It is stunning. The, one, one of the best live performances it, I've ever seen. If, it's, if it's the best. It's so incredible. You're watching it, and my mouth is just like yeah. completely open. My jaw is on the floor. I can only imagine not knowing this band and seeing that for the yeah. first time. Um, anyway, back to Mr. Jones. One of my favorite vocal parts of the whole album. Yeah, you know, gray is my favorite color. I felt so symbolic. God, is, he just erupts in this song. And uh, every time he sings that, I can't believe he hits that note with such power. Yeah. It's, it's such a great it's line. It's crazy. What also, can you, what do you think the second verse means? Read it to me. I want to paint my, I, I'm gonna, or I, I want to paint myself a picture, gonna paint myself in blue and red and black or gray. All the beautiful colors are very, very meaningful. Yeah, you know, gray is my favorite color. <laughs> I felt so symbolic yesterday. If I knew Picasso, I'd buy myself a gray guitar and I'm play. assuming it's sort of that disconnect between wanting to be this incredible artist and colorful, but you're kind of just a boring person. That's how I take it. Right. Oh, and that, that's what I was going to say before is... This song, looking back on it, it's written about this guy, these two guys, Adam and Marty Jones, by the way. This is the bass player that he's played with before. That's who Mr. Jones is. Them just at a bar dreaming about stardom. And that, you know, they say, when everybody loves you, you'll never, never be, be lonely. lonely. And We all want to be rock stars. Yeah, and I think it's, it's supposed to be this kind of like, you know deep down that that's not actually, you know, going to change how you feel deep down. It's going to change a lot of other things, but... It's just really interesting to, first of all, write a song like that and then see them blow up and become this rock stars. This was the song about becoming, wanting to become a rock star and it, and it propelled them into rock stardom. Yeah. The verses, there are these great, all these like hits on these different parts, which is really nice. Love his falsetto, as yeah. cliche as it is on Jones. <laughs> for, some, for a song that just sort of repeats the chords over and over and over and over and over again, yeah. time and time again, yep. they make it colorful just by what you were saying. They still add little things percussively or otherwise, guitar-wise. It's, it's, it's a fun song. Yeah. Okay, from there, we're going to go to Adam's number five song, but my number two song, the closing track, A Murder of One. So just like Rain King, which we haven't talked about yet, this on the album is one of those immediately beautiful and bright, brightly produced, colorful splash of sound that yeah. 
isn't on the whole album. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of spookiness. There's a lot of sort of country twang a little bit right. and a couple songs. This one just oozes with, I don't know, brightness. I was just going to say brightness. I love the way this song makes me feel. It is so warm and colorful and peppy. And the band uses this cool kind of choppy phaser effect on the guitar, which is kind of, you know, a sign to come for the next yes, album. I was going to say that. Which I love because this is the closing track. This just, everything just feels so right about this song. The guitars are just so pretty. I, I love it. I, I also it. like how that, uh, the sort of brightness that you're talking about in the production and the sound of the song works a lot with, I think, the theme of the song as the last song. You know, the last word that he sings over and over again is change. It's about this, like, maybe kind of hopeful ending where he's looking for a change and wants something different. And it, it I think the music actually helps, uh, helps, helps that theme come out. I just, like I said, it just makes me feel so good. And probably... My favorite melody on the entire record is, it's been years since we were born. Yes, I love that. Oh, man. I, I noted that, that too. kills me. It's so good. I don't know. That, again, again, could have been something he just sort of did on the spot. So, much of his, so many of his melodies don't feel structured yes. and written. They just feel like they came out of him. Exactly. Yeah. Which I think a lot of them did, again, Probably, from, like, yeah. from like what we've heard. Um, you know what's interesting is that I think what this song is not not what the song is known for. I think a lot of people know the the beat of this song, the doom do they do drummers know this song is this a, another Maybe, i don't know i just feel like that's something specific to the song that okay. you don't really hear with counting crow songs yeah. i don't think steve executed it that well really you know what's Ooh, i don't know maybe the it's drummer just speaks. yeah maybe it's just i'm just a snobby drummer <laughs> but there's something about that that i've I, never heard a problem with that interesting yeah i mean it's just i don't know i don't know what it is i don't hmm. know it's just something i always noticed the chorus to me has never been something brilliant the change 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 no, no, the just, well, yeah, yeah. All, the, the all your life is just a shame, shame, shame. All your love is just dream, 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 that kind of thing. You're right. But I do love the verses. There's like a funky bass going on and a lot of, you know, melodic guitar feedback, which you don't hear. And you're right, that also, and maybe that's what you're talking about partly, that also is kind of a sign of recovering the satellites, the next album. Um, but to me, the best part of the song is the bridge there's like an outro and there's a bridge but the one for sorrow two for joy three for girls and four for boys that I melody love that as well that melody and there's also like the kick the kick drum is on all fours in the bass line and these arpeggios on the guitar it's just musically the best part of the song I also love, kind of like in a movie, when you're watching a movie and all of a sudden someone in the yes. cast speaks or says yeah, the dialogue that exactly. includes the title of the movie, they say Counting Crows in this song. And something about it doesn't feel hokey. It feels special to me that they sort of end their record. Not start it, but end the record yes. referencing the title of the band through this poem. Um, it just feels important and special. I, I really like that. I agree. And that ending... Change, change, change. I mean, talk about Huge. whiny. Oh, but, but I love it. I do too because yeah. it's so Adam and it's so raw and it's like, I don't give a shit. You know, I'm just going to yelp this out. I think A Murder of One, uh, the label wanted it to be 
the single, the main single, but they wanted to edit it down because it's like five something minutes and for radio. Long. But still, they, they right. wanted it shorter, and Adam refused. He refused to do it, so they didn't release it as a single. Huh. But uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was the fourth single, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Maybe See, like a radio player. It's interesting. I, I've been hearing all these things about, you know, them and the singles, and like Mr. Jones, you know, I, I kept hearing Adam say it wasn't a single, but like, it was a single, so I don't really know what that means. I don't yeah. know at what point these things became singles. I don't know how, what you define Officially as a single. versus a promo versus yada Versus yada. just, you know, it was on the radio so much that they just right. called it a single. I don't really know how it works, right. but... One last thing I want to talk about in Murder of One that I really like yeah. is, I don't know if you got this, but when he starts to sing I Walk Along These Hillsides, yeah. it, it just... It feels like it, it bookended the album because that sounds like a little bit of round here. Like there's the way he's singing and the way he's storytelling and the way he's talking. Maybe you don't agree. Interesting. There's something that sort of pulls the album together because this is a vastly different song and sound from round here, the opener, much yeah. darker. But something about the way he sings that last part, just sort of more quiet and talking. And then all of a sudden he'll erupt into change, change, change. Like it has this yeah. cool um, juxtaposition of That's sort of the older no, sound, I never actually the newer one of this listened last in song. For that. But speaking of that, I just really like that lyric. I don't know if it's anything really special. I just think it paints a nice picture. I walk along these hillsides in the summer neath the sunshine. I am feathered by the moonlight falling down on me. Mm, He just says things in a really great way. He's a poet. And the beginning of the song just starts with blue morning wrapped in strands of fist and bone. Curiosity kitten doesn't have to mean you're on your own. I think the song is about a friend of his who is in an abusive relationship. Oh, God. Um, and just sort of the idea of, you know, change, like get out of that. Um, anyway, this guy just knows how to say things. <laughs> okay, from there, we're going to go into Adam's favorite song on the album, and my number three, Rain King. Oh, we got the long pause. <laughs> long pause, Jones. Uh, <laughs> this is, I'll already say it, this is one of my favorite Counting Crow songs. Wow. I really, there's something about this song that it sounds like a classic. That's not why I like it. It sounds like a classic, but it just. A classic for them or a classic in like the American songbook? It should be a classic yeah. in the American songbook. Like maybe people would disagree. Like maybe the melodies aren't, you know, concrete enough for that. But there is something about it as a song sonically that just hits me so hard. This song was written in 40 minutes. What <laughs> the fuck? It's insane for such a good song. It splashes in with mandolin. That's rhyming. I didn't even mean for it to. <laughs> it's, it, it just, I Another love that Another burst of sunlight. Just for exuberant. Sure. Despite it being called Raid King, it's like yes. the sunniest song they've yeah. ever written. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's the point. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, maybe A Murder of One, and maybe Mr. Jones is like this as well, but I think Rain King has the most guitars. It feels the most full on the album to me. You're right. It does. I think it does have like three different guitars going on, even when Dave Bryson is technically the only guitar player. Like obviously they're overdumbing and stuff like that. But I love 
the descending chords of the verse yeah. going into the ascending chords of the chorus. It's a great song structure. It really is. This is one of those effortless moments. The chorus melody is just wonderful. And this multi-part harmony that just erupts. Just also it's going just, into the chorus. The best. I deserve a little more. With that harmony. So good. And that kind of just exclamatory, I am the rain king. Oh. Got a little chills there? Uh, uh, yeah, always. So lyrically speaking, he mentions a couple times a black-winged bird. And my friend Dina and I, who was also a huge Counting Crows fan, we actually were writing a screenplay once. And we named our fake film production studios Black-Winged Bird Productions. Love that. Yeah. Any chance you get to pay tribute to the Crows, yeah, I am a fan that. of. Melodically... So many nice melodies here, specifically the down into a sea of pens and feathers and and lay me down in a field of flame and heather. Mm. Uh, all these little I things. I learned the word heather from this song. Yeah. What is it? Like this kind of furry flower plant? Brush. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Something like that. Love the bridge. The drums on here are so... It's like, oh, it's so nice. The bridge sounds super REM. That's all. Is I'll that say. right? Yeah, totally. Interesting. Well, actually, one of the you know, like one of the only REM songs I know is Wolves Lower. Yeah. And I think that is actually a very similar <laughs> yeah. kind of beat to that. Clicking drum. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um also just I'm sorry, melodically, the after all the dreaming I come home. And this nice little Hammond solo. Yes. Go Charlie uh, Go. And in the third verse, there's this, you know, build up, this layman down in a field of flame. Oh, drum wise, and, yeah. Yeah, and uh this song. She's been dying, and, and I've been drinking. And I, I love that. I love that. He just when he emotes and when he explodes, especially when he's sort of a little more reserved in the beginning, and as the song progresses, he just more and more emotional. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then this random squawk at the <laughs> end. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. <laughs> Which interesting, but I love the song enough that that's totally okay for matter. me. Um, something else really special about this song is that, first of all, it's the only song to appear on every live album that they've put out, and huh. they put out a lot, and it works in every form. Granted, this, they, this is the opener on Heineken, New Amsterdam. Yes, I think? Yeah. and it's soft, and they play it the same soft way on VH1 Storytellers. Storytellers but I just think it's that's really a testament to a song if you can play it up-tempo like this. You can play it even louder like they do nowadays live, or you can play it extremely soft and slow, and it still works so well. I love this song. Speaking of songs that I love, my number one song on the album, Adam's number two, is the opener of August and Everything After, Round Here. Where the ocean meets the land Just like she's walking on a wire In a circus She parks her car outside of my house And takes her clothes off Says she's close to understanding Jesus And she knows she's more than just a little misunderstood She has trouble acting normal Okay, Round Here is an incredibly special song. Um, it just has this vibe. It has this atmosphere, this very ominous, sparse organ, and just that very classic and simple guitar riff repeating that over riff. and over and over. 
and then just Adam's classic vocally rambly storytelling style. Again, I say classic, but this is where it came from. Right. Like this is the first song on the album. This is sort of the style and sound they were known for. Um, this is quintessential Counting Crows. It really is. This song. He pulls you into a world That's through a this great way song. Of putting it. It's really trance-like. There's something about it. It really, it's it's really special. This of I, honestly, I think of any of the songs on the album. As much as I love Ranking, this was still my number two. This is the most unique song. Um, yeah, I mean, you were talking about that riff. That's obviously my kryptonite. Any of those <laughs> those repeated guitar riffs over, but especially over Charlie's just kind of like soft ascending, patty organ in the background and again there's so many nice melodies over here like i might sing one or two over the next couple minutes but like just you need to listen because there are so many one of my favorite parts or my favorite melodies and she walks along the edge of the world the ocean meets the land just like she's walking it's so pretty when she's nervous yes i love that i also love that that uh that line she knows she's more than just a little misunderstood she has trouble acting normal when she's nervous it's relatable yeah exactly sometimes he says things just very colorfully sometimes he says it and it's the wordplay that i like sometimes he just says things simply that it's just like yeah like maybe no one else has said it like that (laughs) in a song um to be fair i don't know if you feel the same way the chorus itself is okay yeah. around here i mean it's for me it's not the focus of the song it's it not. gets to that point but like that is far from yes. the focus to me like you said it's that world that he builds and it's mostly the verses in that oh, i man. agree but the nice thing about it is that the chorus vocals and whatnot happen over the same exact chords of the verse so it kind of seems at times like it blends just in seamlessly yeah, if yeah. it was just like its own thing different set of chords it might be different but again, you know, I was talking about how on this album the band creates like a nice bass or like a platform for his melodies. This is where it all begins. I'm just so happy that this is the first song on their first album. And this is one of the songs for sure that, you know, blew them up. And all of the melodies are just nicely falling and whatnot. And uh Can we talk about the bridge though? Because we can talk about it. This this bridge or breakdown or whatever what it is so funky and sexy and strange. It is, but it works to the rest of the so song well. It does, especially because when the last verse comes in, it makes it that much nicer. Yes. But I mean, I don't want to necessarily go away from the bridge yet. It's it got like wah in there. Yeah. It's so- just just listen to this. It's crazy. It's so. Uh, I keep. I'm gonna use the word like swaggery a lot <laughs> in in this podcast because I think there's just a lot of stuff that just has so much attitude. It just oozes. It just it exactly. But again, what I said before, having this bridge right before the last verse is everything to me. This is my favorite part of the song. She says it's only in my head. She says I know. It's just like oh, it's so. It's you much more. The- Oh, you're right. <laughs> uh, and the can't you see my walls are crumbling. Also one of my favorite melodies yes. in the entire album. Yes. So good. What else sounds like this song? No, I can't. It's, yeah. 
Uh, will you catch me if I'm falling? Would you catch me if I'm falling? Uh, everything. Very, very late. I, I, I can't, can't see He's just nothing. exploding. She must be tired of something. When he, anytime he's in this higher register, just belting it out after he's been sort of, and she wants another. Yeah. It just, I don't know. It's We're this, singing it, most of this stuff <laughs> down the octave, but he is. He's he, exploded. Yeah. It's just this perfect, explosive, emotional climax. And just the little melodies are just never the same especially when you hear the one thing i will say yep i am so in love with this recorded version and these melodies that this is sometimes the only time i'm annoyed at some of the live versions of this song because, because i want them to sing i want the them melodies. to sing I'm the melodies you. i love on this version. i agree but there are also still moments on certain live versions like in across wire etc etc where i love little parts of that that i even sing sometimes yes. during the you know, I agree. That's version, one so. of the beautiful things about Counting Crows. You have a lot of, of options to choose from. You can listen <laughs> yeah. to a certain live version that might be different. Something interesting to note uh, note about this song is that it was written by Adam, but it was also written when he was in the band The Himalayans. Right. This is actually a cover. Yeah. If you want to... Exactly. You know. I mean, it's a cover that Adam wrote. Right. So is it the, really a cover? Right. Um I obviously like this version a lot more, but you just played me yesterday the Himalayans version, which is interesting. I would go and check that out. It's you can heavier, find it on rockier, but also feels very eighties in yeah. a way. Which I mean, I love feel the 80s. I'm not, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but it is very. It sounds more of the time. Yes, stripping it down to this was so effective. Yeah. And the first lyric of Counting Crows you ever hear if you pop this disc in, not knowing I this band, well. this step out the front door like a ghost into the fog where no one notices the contrast of white on white. And in between the moon and you, angels get a better view of the crumbling difference between wrong and right. It's, we could just go back and forth so all day singing. poetic <laughs> and beautiful. And yes, I completely agree. I love that that's the first lyric. And this is another one of the songs that was written just singing off the top it's of not, his head. It's not possible. I'm pretty sure... It's folklore. I think, so when Adam auditioned for the Himalayans and actually got the gig, they just started playing music and he just started singing. And so this was why, one of the songs, why, I think, that he just started singing and this is what came out of it. So it's probably just all musically the Himalayans and he came in and did... Yeah. Yeah. Because sure. they credit all the all the Himalayans right. band members as the songwriting credits. Yeah. So I'm music. sure the music itself was written yeah. maybe by them, but the melody and whatnot was Adam. Yeah. I want everyone to listen to this song. I mean, you listen, listen to all these songs we recommend, but Round Here is such a special, please, perfect introduction I mean, to this the band. The more we're talking about it again, like for me especially, these lists are completely fluid. Uh, I still really do love Rain King and think that Rain I, King should be higher. As, but... <laughs> as we were talking through Mr. Jones, I was like, eh, it should be in there. It's, it's fantastic. But Round Here is just very special and very important. Okay, so after Round Here, the first song, we go right into Omaha, which is a much more traditional folk alt-country sound. It's almost staggering to yeah. go from Round Here, which, Agreed. as we said, is this world-building, beautiful, spacious, spooky, special song, into just kind of this mid-tempo folk song. It's kind of a bummer to me, honestly. It's, it's, it's a good song. Yeah. It's not great. It shows their range, and it's even from this, it goes to Mr. Jones. So it shows what this band can do in like in one, two, three, and even four in Perfect Blue Buildings. Um, there's accordion on this song, yeah. And accordion, you know, shows up in I think the next album. I'm not sure if it's on subsequent albums after Recovering the Satellites, but I just find that to be a very cool touch, yeah. For a, it's still this is technically a rock band. Um, 
if you listen to the old version on that flying demos uh, uh, CD that mm-hmm. they put out or that they shopped around, there's a version of Omaha, which is so vastly different. Oh, it's really? very rocky, crunchy guitars. And it's like, this is the most <laughs> far from that that it could be. Do you think that would have fit better on this album or after Round Here? Would it fit more fluidly? No, no, no. Oh, I, no think that, I think this works this a lot better. better. Yeah, it's, catchy. it's a catchy chorus. It's just not emotionally moving to me like the last song I was. I agree. Um, I agree. Despite Adam having great vocals, as always. It's very warm. It's a very comfortable uh, song to me. There's something about that. You know what I don't like about the song? Tell me. The na-na-na-na-na-na. La-la-la. I la, do la. not like that it, he put the, that in. On this album, there's a lot of like very faint vocalization going on in a lot of the a little bridge. buried in the mix, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. I don't know what that, like who came up with that idea, but it's just very specific to this album. Um the one thing about this song is I like the think you better turn your ticket in with the chord change behind it in the chorus is really nice. Yeah. And lyrically, get right to, to the, the heart, heart of matters. matters. It's the heart that matters more. I love that. It's such a simple it is. But, but beautifully little poetic turn of phrase. I remember wordplay. looking at a yearbook of like our sister, Rachel. Um, I was looking at her yearbook and I think one of her friends, Shira, um, okay put that as her oh, really? quote and That's i always great. loved that i also had a quote uh, from adam duritz on my yearbook wait but what we'll, was it we'll get, we'll get to there it. We'll get oh to i don't know if i remember that um yeah and then just another lyrically roll a new leaf over roll a new life over roll a new love over in every verse he changes that up which i think is very special that is a very me thing to do in yeah. my songwriting i just i always love changing one thing about each verse lyrically speaking yes i'm not as good as him about changing it melodically for sure but Okay, from Omaha, that goes into Mr. Jones. And then from Mr. Jones, we get Perfect Blue Buildings. So this goes back for the first time to that melancholy, somber, Counting Crows sound. Yeah. You got that nice Hammond sound from Charlie. kind of makes it spooky again. I keep using that word, but I don't spooky. know. It's got no, this I eeriness agree. that I, I like. It's um, kind of eerie. It's a simple, I will call a beautiful slog. It's just kind of a slog. I'm not crazy about Perfect Blue Buildings. At one point, I think you were. I think I was too. Um, yeah. Which is fine. I don't actually think it's a They played slog. it at that first show, I'm pretty Did sure. Did they? I think. And time and time again. <laughs> um, I think you're right about time again. again yeah. Time and time again. Um, I don't really see it as a slog, necessarily. But I agree. There's something about it. The chorus is the best part. So beautiful that... Sleep in perfect blue buildings. Great melody. Great melody. And this is another minor verse to major chorus right. like I was talking about before. This is also very depressing. This song, lyrically. lyrically yeah. uh, I definitely want to read off some of these lyrics. Hit me. Uh, in beds, in little rooms, in buildings, in the middle of these lives, which are completely meaningless. <laughs> I got bones beneath my skin, and mister, there's a skeleton in every man's house. Beneath the dust and love and sweat that hangs on everybody, there's a dead man trying to get out. That's some very Jack Skellington shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> and you got an attitude of everything I ever wanted. I got an attitude of need. Ah, oh, this guy. Very I, personal. Very, I mean, throws it all out that's there. That's everything. I know, Counting every Crows song, is, is so personal. Back to musically. I like the mandolin on this song. Gives yes. it a very R.E.M. vibe. I'm using R.E.M. touchstones a lot. What's really interesting about R.E.M., again, I would love to do them. They have such a huge, incredible discography. There's very two very distinct R.E.M. sounds. There's sort of that fast jangle pop mm-hmm. guitar but then there's also their folksy mandolin sound of their later are albums. they very mandolin heavy on a few of their albums okay. in the late 80s and 90s they get 
Yeah, like automatic I, for the people. I mean, like, Counting Crows introduced me to so many instruments. Mandolin is definitely one of them, and it's now become a favorite of mine for sure. Yeah. Okay, from there, we talked about Anna Begins, and then we talked about Time and Time Again and Rain King. And so then we hit Sullivan Street. We hit, to me, the dip of the album. You, I, I don't just mean Sullivan Street. I just mean, in general, the next few songs. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Those three <laughs> songs in a row, uh, Sullivan Street, Ghost Train, and Raining Baltimore, are all slow, downtrodden, kind of sloggy. I like some more than others, but you're right. You get this chunk at the end that, thank God, is relieved by Murder of One. Yeah. But um, Sullivan Street, I think I like way more than you do. I don't love this song, and I think every other Counting Crows lover out there would be... Horrified? Yeah. I don't know about that for me, but it's... Sort of a one-two chord, you know, mid-tempo kind of thing. But and the piano and the reverb makes it sound kind of '80s to me, which I like. Oh, I, I hear that. Do you I know, know what, what I mean? mean? Yeah, I do. This, da, 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 da. Yeah, it's got kind of this. Yeah, um, '80s epic, epic, quote unquote. Even exactly. The song is exactly. not epic at but all. I really yeah, I hear like that. it. I love the chorus. Despite, no. see, oh I know you God. don't like it, despite the whininess. But th- that's the thing. It's like we've talked about how I. He's my favorite voice in music, for sure. It is something about... This is different, though. It's something about the whininess, and it's something about the melody. I'm almost drowning in her sea. And yeah, so, like, the, game, do, the game, harmony game, makes it work. To me, I think that is the best part, is I think her last harmony. It, this is uh, Maria or Mariah McKee is on backgrounds here. Mariah? You mean Maria? Because... That's where Maria came from, my friend. Uh, I'm not so sure about that, um, Joshy. I'm pretty sure, Adam. No, that might be one of the things he said, but yeah. that's not exactly <laughs> what Maria is. What we're talking about, by the way, is that in the first song in Round Here, uh, Adam says... Maria came Mar- from Nashville. Maria, Maria says she's dying. And there's this character, Maria, and for the longest time, there was all this this question, who me- is he Maria? He mentions her in a few other songs in, yeah. his, in the discography. But later on, we can talk about Okay, who, the, Maria. who Maria is. Um also, the last note of this song, everything I need, just goes on forever. And it's like cringeworthy <laughs> to me. It's really crazy. I think even more so now, I really don't like this song. Huh. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there, there are reasons. I, I, I stand by it. <laughs> I like it. From there, we'll go to Ghost Train, another sort of creepy sound effect ambient intro that I like. Similar, it kind of sounds like an Anna Begins beat. They sort of repeat that sort of stop start drumming. I agree. Um, I love the droney, moody verse contrasted with the more melodic and emotive chorus. I think they're so good on this album with contrast. And maybe in general, like not even maybe, in general, they're very good with their contrast. What you said is true. The chorus is really the only melody you get in the whole song. The rest of it is kind of Uh, spoken word almost. I mean, he's, he's using melody, but... Yeah, that how do you do uh, in the chorus. The only thing is I wish there was a harmony on there. Really? Just like in Sullivan Street. Like, no. I don't know if we can do it right now, but... No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that how how do you do... Yeah. Get that... Oh, man, that would, that would just made it so much better. It's interesting. No, really. I mean, I haven't even... I would have to hear it to, <laughs> to agree. That's why I was trying that. to replicate it with you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But this chorus to me is very special. I love that the band drops out completely. 
the chorus, uh, the the guitar chords are really nice, and there these there the there are these little little fluttering. I can't talk today. <laughs> fluttering little like yeah. like guitars in the background. It puts you in this really nice place, and the melody to me I love. I mean, you just sang it, but especially sang it poorly. And the second one, it's <laughs> how do you do? Oh yes, when he goes up, and at the end, how do you do? Oh, he like changes it every time and it's so nice. The best version of this song is VH1 Storytellers. Mm. I know that you told me recently you've been listening to that whole album Across a Wire. I've been obsessed with the live album. Um, I think they bring this song to a, a new level because when they introduce, we'll talk about in a second, uh, Dan Vickery, who becomes the lead guitar player in this band. He's already playing with them at that point. When he's on in the, in this song and the band in general is bigger, it's such it's they do such a good job. I love that version. So listen to this version, but definitely listen to the VH1 Storytellers version of Ghost Train. Agreed. One interesting thing is that um, there's a band, there's a metalcore band yes. from the 2000s called Between, Between the, the Buried, Buried and me. me that got their name from Counting Crows, which is yes. such a weird influence. But I love that. Maybe I not though. That. I mean, we talked about how I mean emo quote-unquote yeah he can be emo and, metalcore a little different but, uh, yeah but in terms but of right. I mean, who knows what their lyrics are like maybe True. this band was a big influence um another thing i just want to note there are these awkward tom fills at the end do you know what i'm talking, <laughs> do about? You know what you're talking about like i i don't agree with that decision steve bowman oh. there's something about it that just feels bone very to pick with steve. i really do i really do and thankfully uh he doesn't stick around for that much longer awkward <laughs> And finally, we'll talk about the penultimate song on the record, Raining in Baltimore. To me, it kind of makes sense to have one solo piano song on the album. And I kind of like it in this position, too. Um, it's still slow and sad yeah. and a little dreary. It's not. I'm trying to read your face to see what you think about it. It's, I don't love it. I really yeah. don't love it as a song. Um, you know what's I need interesting? A phone call. That's the best part. Yeah, I like I the, that part, too. I specifically, the phone call raincoat just that hitting that note on the chorus sunburn yeah i love that and actually i don't know why it always reminds me not many people sing about sunburns lyrically ever except for third eye blind in that song you're like a sunburn i would like to save he says something else in another song in a few albums that is he doesn't say sunburn but it's about that which i really like he says it in a cool way so you were talking about uh you like that there's an acoustic song in this album so I don't know if you know this, but first of all, the album is called August and Everything After. Actually, on the cover of this album are lyrics to that song sort of faint in the background. To the title song, August and Everything After. The title song is like an eight-minute, maybe, I mean, I don't think he ever actually recorded it, an eight-minute song, just a long lyrical song. And I think... In the recording sessions, he was trying to get a good take of it, but it was so hard because, again, he's he's like a rudimentary piano player, and he's trying to get this live take of him singing it and playing it, but he was just not able to do it. And so at one point, he took out this song that he wrote for Bonnie Raitt, hmm. which is this, Raining in Baltimore. He wrote it for oh. Bonnie Raitt uh, to sing, and... I think he started just playing it. He just needed a break from August. He started playing it, and then he looked up, and T-Bone Burnett was there, and he's like, what is that song? He's like, oh, it's the song I wrote for Bonnie Raitt. He's like, you wrote it. He's like, yeah. 
He's like, so this is like a Counting Crows song. He's like, I guess it could be. He's like, okay, fuck this August and Everything After song. Like, this is like taking forever. This song needs to be on the album. (laughs) And I think since then, Adam has been like, yeah, this was the right move to put this song on the album as opposed to August and Everything After. But yeah. I just thought that was a fun, a fun little, little story about it. One other thing is you you had mentioned it for uh, Ghost Train as well, but the version of Raining in Baltimore yes. in Across the Wire on I really, the really, Hammers, really, oh my really God, need a I love when he's screaming, really, really. Oh, yeah. it is so emotive and it's such a powerful conclusion to the song. I, I, I love that version. And I think also lyrically on this song, there's there, there's this one thing at the end that is just so Adam. I need a phone call. Maybe I should buy a new car. I can always hear a freight train if I listen real hard. And I wish it was a small world because I'm lonely for the big towns. I'd like to hear a little guitar. Guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time to put the top down. It's, it's just like, I just, going to so many concerts, you know, Adam's talked about, you know, living near a train it's just like all these things it's just like if you know adam like picking it's just parts like of his so life and putting it into adam. his imagery yeah. yeah and then after raining in the baltimore we have a murder of one which we already talked about and that was the debut album august and everything after Thanks for listening to Top 5 Disco, part one in our in-depth discussion, dissection, debate, and analysis of Counting Crows' entire discography. Now that we've discussed the band's early history and classic 1993 debut album, August and Everything After, tune in next week where we explore their sophomore album and abrasive follow-up, Recovering the Satellites. But before that, we want to know your thoughts, your opinions, and your personal top fives for Counting Crows. What are your top five favorite songs on August and Everything After, and why? Are you one of the fans who think it's by far their best album? Reach out and let us know. You can support us and help Top 5 Disco grow simply by subscribing to this podcast so you can get the new episodes as soon as they come out. And you can find and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and now Instagram for behind-the-scenes goodies and an easy way to connect. Also, don't forget to tell your music-loving friends and family all about us. Thank you so much again for listening. Tune in next time. And remember, it's really all disco. Disco.